Welcome to the Big Beatles Sort Out, a show in which I, author and musician Gary Abbott, attempt to finally decide my favourite Beatles recordings by scoring each and every one for lyrical content, musicality and production. I will be assisted in this venture by my brother and resident Beatles expert, Paul Abbott, with a deep knowledge of the Beatles and the wider context in which they operated. Each episode we will explore and score five songs from the Beatles' full recording catalogue. The songs will be drawn at random to try and avoid any favourite albums or era prejudices, skewing the results as we go along. Thanks for joining us as we try and sort out the Beatles. Welcome to episode 13. And welcome to Paul Together Now, Abbott. Um, hello. Hello. I'm losing track of that of these. Have I actually done that one before? I'm not sure. I have no idea. We'll say I haven't, and um, we'll see, see if I can think I think of you've more. repeated a couple already. So Have yeah. I? <laughs> right. There's only so many words rhyme with my name. There's more than you'd think, though. Um, I'll have to start working into your middle names, but they're not quite as easy. Yes, and much less relevant. Yeah. Um, We'll start today with a question from one of our Twitter followers, uh, David Huang, or at Quangi, as his um, handle is on Twitter. And he asks, if you could be a fly on the wall for the recording of one Beatles track, what would it be? An excellent question, I think. So, Paul. It is a very good question, you see. And the reason it's a good question is because I taught Dave Huang very well. Oh, right. So he's he a, a former, former, st- former student of mine, a uh, current friend. Oh, so, great. Although I've not, not seen him in a, in a very long time. Hi, Dave. And it is a good question, yeah. And it's quite a hard one to answer because, obviously, there are a lot of sessions. Yes. But I was trying to think about how you would narrow this down with a certain amount of logic rather than just going straight in off on an emotional sort of, oh, that one definitely, if one doesn't leap to mind. Because, I mean, there's some sessions that like have been covered in massive detail because it's a bit later Mm. in their career and they've got, you know, lots of photography or they've put the box sets out or there's lots of testimony about what's happened in them and things like that. So you sort of feel like you've been there a little bit already. Yeah. Even if you haven't. Uh, so, but then again, Abbey Road, there's not much about, you know, even with the box set, you still don't feel like there's much, like you've been let into that. It feels yeah, like they've kept true. that very private to themselves. Yeah. And the other obvious thing, though, then is like the, the Please Please Me session, yes. where they do those, you know, that, that block and just the do the, the majority of the album in just like that massive session back in 1963. But I have got an answer. Come on then. Anyway. Uh, it's, and it's just because this has always fascinated me. Yeah. So for when they start writing All You Need Is Love, they start by doing a backing track in... They go to Olympic Sound Studios right. in uh, uh, June of 1967, 14th of June 1967. And what's always fascinated me is, me is they start working on All You Need Is Love, which I think they sort of basically left to the last minute to write, or Lennon did. And they play on this backing track. Lennon plays a harpsichord. Mm. McCartney plays a double bass. Mm. George plays a violin and Ringo's on drums. And I would have just liked to have seen them in this weird new studio, because Olympic Sound Studios is a, a big new recording studio. Right. Um, they the go there and it's like, oh, well, we've got a harpsichord, we'll use that. And, and George is like, well, I'll play violin. <laughs> and, and this stuff all ends up on the, on the final thing. Okay. It's all in there in the mix. Oh, right. Uh, I think George is mainly playing the violin a bit like a ukulele for some of it. Right, okay. Yeah, he's, and he's so holding it like a little guitar. Yeah, so yeah. I think he does a mix of bits and pieces. So sometimes you can hear little sort of plinky, plinky noises. I think that's that. Hmm. But I'd have just loved to have seen that session. Was was it just that stuff was lying around and they thought, well, we'll try that instead? Hmm. Was it 
was it the fact that they were in a new place they were doing this sort of new stuff i i don't know i'd i'd love to see how that basis of that song got going with these mm. different instruments and them trying it out and how quickly they adapted to working like that so that's my answer it's uh, 14th of june 1967 olympic sound studios all you need is love day one recording great answer um thank you I need to be careful to not give too much away any answer I would give so as not to spoil any future episode. So I'll try and stick to one already scored and it'll be in a lot less detail than that. Um, so I would love to have been on that rooftop when they did get back and it was recorded, wasn't it? So that is part yeah. of the versions we hear. So, um, yeah, but I won't get into any more than that because uh, I just don't have as much facts and figures as you, but I think it'd be a really interesting thing to have seen. Um, yes. As long oh, as you had a big coat. Yeah, I'd wrap up warm, obviously, and I'd wear my long johns. Yeah. Paul, on this Beatle Day, what happened? Okay. So, this Beatle Day is the 30th of November, and I, I did have to do a little bit of searching out to try and find something. And I found two main things I could have picked. One could have been 1960, which uh, on the 30th of November 1960 is when uh, Paul McCartney and Pete Best get deported from Hamburg mm-hmm. on suspicion of arson basically right when they you know which they didn't commit arson but they got kicked out in essentially a dispute over moving right. clubs when they, okay. so but I, i'm not going to go into detail about that one what i just thought was interesting is on the 30th of november 1964 uh, brian epstein appears on desert island discs right so desert island discs for anyone who doesn't know perhaps if they've got any overseas listeners who don't know what it yes, is, is a, americans oh good oh hello americans it's a programme on the radio. It's been a very long-running programme in the radio on the BBC where a guest comes along and rather than it just be a straight interview, they select uh, 10 records, I think it's 10, and a book and a personal object as if they were stranded on a desert island, the things I'd like to have with them if they were stranded on a, on a desert island. Mm-hmm. And so on the 30th of November 1964, Brian Epstein appears on there with Roy Plumley, the original presenter. Yeah. And it's interesting what he picks, really, given this is the, you know, he's there because Beatlemania's gone insane. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, late 1964, they're the biggest thing in the world. But he picks, for his discs, he picks the George Martin Orchestra version of All My Loving. Okay. <laughs> rather than the Beatles version, which is, <laughs> and it's great, the George Martin Orchestra version. It's got this sort of, you know, jazz samba thing going yeah. on. Then he picks um, a few classical records, classical in air quotes uh, mm. so he picks the Bach Brandenburg Concerto number no. five he picks Sibelius's Symphony number no. two and uh, Max Brooks Violin Concerto number no. one mm-hmm. but he also picks um, Carmen Amaya and company doing the Fiesta de Jerez the Spanish flamenco thing right so that's essentially a recording of flamenco dancing mm-hmm. he also picks uh, the Quartet Très Bien doing Kilimanjaro that's like a jazz a jazz combo thing, like a small jazz band. Uh, the most interesting thing I think he picks is um, by, it's listed on the on the website of this as um, Michael Olatunji, but he's better known as Babatunde Olatunji, who's a Nigerian drummer, mm-hmm. picks a piece called Odunde Odunde or Happy New Year, which is a brilliant piece of music, mm. all sort of African drumming stuff, which is a, an excellent choice. And then the other thing, he picks one Beatles song and he picks She's a Woman, Okay. Which is such an interesting thing for him to have picked. It had come out on the 23rd of November in um, in America. So 
so it was basically the week that it came out. Yeah, so it's right. It's 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 on his mind. Yeah, yeah. And also, so. it wouldn't do the sales any harm if that if people were listening and it's like, oh, that's the B side as well. Ah. Yeah, indeed, that's a good point actually. Yeah. So yeah, it comes out on the twenty seventh in in the UK. And this is on the thirtieth. Uh, so it only picks one Beatles thing, but he does pick that George Martin one okay. as well. When he was asked, you were always asked on Desert Island Discs, which one record will you keep out of the, I think, eight or ten or whatever, eight, eight that yeah. you've brought along. And he chose the Quartet Très Bien's Kilimanjaro. Right. So there you go. And there's loads there's loads of Desert Island Discs stuff available to listen to they've made most most of them available as podcasts but this does not appear to be available oh, and i don't i don't know if it's missing or there's legal issues or what oh. which is why a lot of them are, you know bbc archiving is a whole world in itself it but, may not uh, have got archived yeah possibly which would be a shame yeah but if it does exist and it's out there i'm sure someone will have it hint hint yeah. well would it be the same presenter who would go on to interview paul mccartney in the early 80s because i listened to that one not long ago um, uh, probably, yeah, yeah, Roy yeah. Promley, yeah. Well, he chose um, Julia as one of his songs, I think. Did he? Yeah, he chose, a, that, that was his Lennon one. It was post, you know, Lennon dying, because I think it was about 83 or something. So, yeah, mm. anyway, anyway, we digress. But that's a that's a very um, interesting thing to, to, would have been great to have heard that. I hope it does exist. On with the random picks. And first up, we have... Matchbox. Well, if you don't want my peaches, honey, please don't take my tweet. If you don't want me those peaches, honey, please don't mess around my tweet. I got news for you, baby. Leave you here in misery. Matchbox, Paul. A song all about toy cars. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's not about toy cars. It's about... Carl Perkins writing another song based on an old blues song. Right. Did he claim this one for himself this time, or was he...? Uh, well, yeah. Well, there was originally a song called Matchbox Blues by Blind Lemon Jefferson from the 20s, mm. and then Carl Perkins did... did and this will sound like we're making fun of Carl Perkins for stealing things for this is the second no. time in a, that yeah. he's cropped up. But it's it was a standard practice. You, you know, blues songs travel through all sorts of versions of things yeah. before they ended up in some fixed form or other or or inspired something else. So there's the, you know, the Blind Lemon Jefferson version mm. and some other stuff eventually ends up, you know, as a Carl Perkins credited song called Matchbox, which he released in 1957. Right. Uh, the Beatles record it on the 1st of June, 1964. It comes out on the Long Tall Sally EP. Right. In June of 1964. Now, now it's on the Past Masters collection. Uh, interestingly, it's a Ringo vocal. Yes. It was the A-side of a single in America. Okay. How which did only it do? got to number Well, it got to number 17. Okay. That's but that was when Capital was still doing all sorts of weird things with the releases yeah. in America. But... Yeah, it's just a it's a cover version. It's a Ringo rocker, and um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, no surprises or great shakes to start us off with this episode. It's a bit of a Carl Perkins rock and roll number, very quite straight down the middle one. Um, no real big breakout parts to comment on. So um, there's nothing particularly wrong with it, as there's nothing particularly challenging to go wrong with it. I suppose. Um, I do need to address the Ringo thing um, as the singer. He's singing it adequately with a bit of personality in there. 
Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but when I was in the little bit of research I did, I stumbled upon the thing about he had a sore throat or something whilst he was recording it. Well, yeah, he did have a sore throat, so he was he felt embarrassed because Carl Perkins was at this recording session. Oh, was he? God. Yeah. So there's rumours that Carl Perkins played like one of the guitar parts on this, but uh-huh. I, I suspect not. But anyway, Ringo's singing this this Carl Perkins song, and he was sort of said he was embarrassed because he had a sore throat. I mean, he did have a sore throat because two days later he was in hospital with tonsillitis and far, 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 pharyngitis and missing the start of the Next World Tour. Yeah. So that is a that's a sore throat to the max. Yeah, valid excuse, I guess. Um, so I guess say the guitar solo is is fine. I mean, they wonder if that was Mr. Perkins himself. No, um, no, it's yeah. not. George loved Carl Perkins too much, yeah. so you know he was he must have been. I don't know whether he'd have been overawed or what, but he, you know the funny thing is both the vocals and that lead guitar are double tracked, right? Which is you know I don't know another attempt to make it sound bigger than. Okay. It otherwise would, I think. Well, we'll talk a bit about that in production. Um, the piano backing helps it along, um, which is Martin, I'm guessing, doing that. Yeah. And he gets quite into it towards the second half. I can almost imagine George Martin's slick back hair slipping for a bit whilst he gets his oh, feet, feet Jerry up. Jerry Lee Lewis style, yeah. yeah. Um, the problem, I think, with the, with the track for me is that, especially as it's a cover as well, it just feels a bit routine and un- uninteresting. It's not got much to get stuck into i'm going to give it 41 for music because it's it, it's a perfectly adequate rocker which is not one of the best that's just what it is um so onto the production i like the general overall sound of this track especially the guitar at the top of it um and i like the bright and bouncy piano really nicely captured i don't like the over the top reverb again which I, might be the doubled vocal that's both both are layered he's he's doing to ringo what he often does to george and in those early days, which is kind of really soup up that vocal with a full-on room echo mm. or something. Uh, I don't know if you agree. It's a bit. It's a bit. Yeah, I think it's it's it is pretty yeah, reverby. On yeah, there. and once you actually have double track vocals, if they're not perfectly matched, it becomes a little it, bit washy. Well, then you're hearing more four. I mean, if they're both of them are getting reverb on them, you, and they're both quite a long delay reverb as well, you're getting like almost four vocals really but um yeah uh, so you said they doubled up the guitar and the vocal and yeah yeah i mean is there much else to say about production on it not really except that i'm sh- i was reading today and i hadn't really thought about it it's someone saying that it's a, there's a 12 string on it and i was trying to work out if there is and it does sound like one of the rhythm one of the rhythm guitar parts is a is a 12 string guitar right. and it's a question of who played what then if that is the 12 string guitar if based on the you know the how it's tracked and recorded and stuff like that but yeah i think they possibly put it one of the rhythm guitar parts is a 12 string part because again it's fleshing out the sound a bit giving it making it a bit bigger okay yeah it, it does like i say though it doesn't really stand out i say it's it's fine as far as they achieve the song i think i think it's you know it's just the song is what the song is and i'm going to give it 47 for production well, you'll be happy to hear, Paul, that for the first time, I'm actually going to score the lyrics for this cover. What? Which? What? Why? It, well, you'll see what? what. Well, because normally I don't score lyrics um, on covers because the Beatles didn't write the lyrics, and I, and I, I don't count gender swap kind of lyric what changes as anything original. But now Ringo does say something original in this one, doesn't he? Well, yeah, he, he, he makes the lyrics into a complete nonsense, <laughs> essentially. He says, "If you don't want Ringo's peaches, honey." Then please don't shake my tree. 
if you don't want any of Ringo's peaches or honey. That's what he says. Which Not I'm in pre- this version, he doesn't. He does in the version I've listened to. What? He says, if you don't want any of Ringo's peaches, honey, he does. He, he, he sticks Ringo in front of it. I dispute that. I'm, I'm, well, we, we're going to have to solve this then because... Right, I'm just listening now. Okay. If you don't want Ringo's peaches, honey, please don't mess around. He does say that, yeah. <laughs> I told you he did. Right, he, bloody he, hell. <laughs> How have I never noticed that before? He, he, he says it nice and clearly. He says, if you don't want any of Ringo's peaches, honey. Right, okay, well, I don't think it's adequate grounds for you to be giving it a lyrics score, but I will mention... I'll tell you probably... The reason I probably never noticed it before is I've only ever listened to it, really, on my tapes of, yeah. of uh, rock and roll music. Where it's probably not that clear, but maybe it's just me being dim. I'm not suggesting that I in any way am... Uh, perfect in these things but yeah it's just never really occurred to me that and if i was to sit down and like play it and sing it to myself as, the, as if i was doing the beatles version i would never have thought of that yeah well you'd have to change it to paul's peaches then wouldn't it? anyway no one's having my peaches <laughs> leave my tree alone but don't worry it's only getting one for lyrics so i'm giving yeah. it i'm giving it a bonus point for him for his improvisation so it gives the song an overall of 29.7 can I mention something about the lyrics, though? Because, yeah. you know, the lyrics in the in the original, the Carl Perkins original, are, I'm sitting here wondering, will a matchbox hold my clothes? So mm. the idea being, you know, I've not got much in life. Right. I could fit it all in a matchbox, is how I've always assumed it was meant to be. Okay. But, of course, in this version, he basically says, he says, I said I'm sitting here watching matchbox hole in my clothes. Like, I've got a hole in my clothes... The size of a matchbox? I, you know. I, I, yeah, I'm not even. I didn't even try to. I just, I, I it completely yeah. washed me by altogether. Yeah, I mean, um, matchbox. So is it listed? Is that what the lyrics are, would would are kind of listed as being in official references or? Yeah, yeah. If you sort of look up the lyrics matchbox to the Beatles version compared it to the, the matchbox hole, it'd be a strange way to come. I suppose it is something signifying small so he's thinking like a rip or you know you've got torn clothes yeah but as we know anyone who's listening to i mean even to this day if you're listening to a record and try to work it out without access to printed lyrics or something like that you'll still get words wrong yeah. and in those days they're learning it literally off the record yeah. you know off a, off a 45 Look, he or was, whatever he was there with them <laughs> <laughs> yeah they could have asked yeah the actual oh. yeah well, he might not have been able to understand Ringo with his sore throat and his deep Liverpoolian accent. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll put that mystery um, back to the mystery bed. Uh, and next we have oh. you like. <laughs> next up, we have you like me too much. Again tonight, telling me there'll be no next time if I just don't treat you right. You'll never leave me, and you know it's true. Because you like me too much, and I like... You like me too much, Paul. Oh, well, you know. Yeah, so this is a George Harrison number off the... Uh, appears on the B-side of the, the Help album, which comes out on the 6th of August, 1965. It's recorded on in one session on the February the 17th of 1965. The end. Okay. Yeah, if, if, if you can keep it short and snappy if you wish. Um, I've got stuff to say about the the, the music of uh, yeah. this, but um, to be honest, as with some of the things that turn up on the B-side of Help, 
it's charming, but mm. it's sort okay. of insubstantial, despite having lots of bits I like about it. So yeah, well, it's nice to be back with George for a start. We've we've been. Mm. Uh, it feels like it's been a little while since we've been with him because he had quite a lot up at the front of the uh, the run. Um, I like the trill piano intro, the mm-hmm. kind of country and western kind of style thing, um, which is quite jolly. Which works well when the kind of minor chord of the verse comes in. It's got a nice um, juxtaposition there. I really like the organ throughout. It is an organ, isn't it? No, it is not. What is it? Ah, it's a Hohner pianet. Okay, well, we'll talk about that in a bit. I like the Hohner pianet throughout. It's not doing anything rhythmically interesting, although it does get a bit more um, bouncy in the second verse onwards. But it, I love the way the chord, that whatever the, I love the chord shapes he's, whoever's playing it is using. It's got some nice suspensions and, and whatnot, plus a few little fluffs here and there, I think. But in the main, I like it. I like the call and answer piano and guitar section. That's fun. And uh, the harmony line throughout um, is simple but precise. And uh, I think contributed towards this being a very neat bit of music. I think it's, I like it. I'm giving it 57.5 for music. Mm. So, um, so let's deal with this organ that isn't an organ then. What is a thing that I've already forgotten? <laughs> a pianette. That's it. Yeah. It's, uh, they use it on a few little bits and pieces in this, these sessions, but it's, it's an electric uh, instrument and a, you know so an electric piano essentially very yeah. early electric piano well not very early there was there's so many more weird electronic instruments and electric instruments around in these early days and people think there is yeah but it's it's essentially it's a little electric piano that um, lennon plays on this mm. it's nice i really like the sound and yeah. he's playing some real interesting you know chord variations he's putting some some seconds and sevenths and stuff all sorts of things in there isn't he um it's got a nice sound um i think it's nicely put together this and george's voice isn't drowning in echo which i'm really happy to hear um i haven't got a great deal else to say about it um there's not as much to produce as some of the others with only that simple harmony well it's like two two vocals isn't it and quite a straightforward rhythm backing is there anything to note other than the uh, pianette no, I mean obviously there's, there's a two pianos on it. There's there's George Martin playing, and there's also Paul McCartney doubling up with it as well. Okay. Oh, uh, I see. Right. Yeah. So you've got two pianos and the pianette. And they're playing at different uh, octaves, aren't they? Am I or imagining that? It's, too, it's quite hard to tell, really. Yeah. Okay. How would I know? I can't see into the music. Oh, into the yeah, you wouldn't know. If, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's. I like that that's the bits and pieces of arrangement on this. It's it's fine and and yeah, like George's double tracked vocals are all right. So yeah, it's good. I'm giving it 55 production because I like the pianet. Lyrics then, we come to the weaker part of the song. I'm afraid um, mm. George taking a leaf out of John's playbook here uh, with the semi-jealous, insecure, toxic masculine lyrics. A, a bit creepy. Um, he, he wouldn't let her leave him because she likes him too much and she just don't know it. He could have gone further and made it more obliquely about being a two-way unhealthy relationship, but because it sounds more one-sided, we don't get to that. I think it would, you know, he's he's perhaps skirting on the idea of a unhealthy relationship, but because it, it's it's from one perspective, it doesn't come across as two people who are, you know, you know, and two people unsuited to each other are drawn to each other. Well, if you think about what uh, you have to sort of, if you try and imagine mm. it's about him and his life if you if it is we don't know but 
he's on the road, so he's also seeing Patty Boyd, obviously, at the time, yeah. but he's, he's on the road. All sorts could be happening, might be happening, yeah. was happening, whatever. It, but this is a bit like, ah, well, you know, you'll always come back to me, girl. Yeah, you know, well, this is it. That's what I'm I mean. telling you about it, and you'll come back to me. Or you're finding out about it, but you'll come back to me. So, yeah. which is strangely mean-spirited and, and big-headed from George, really. And I think, I, I, I mean, to be as charitable as possible, I think the likelihood is is he's just rhymed some words because the words do rhyme, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and using the word like instead of love does soften the edges a little, but I get the feeling that it, 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 it comes out of the phrase, you like me too much. And I like you. Um, it's a bit vague and undramatic, um, I guess, but it's, yeah, I'm going to give it 39.5 for Luke's because they, they're, they're serviceable, but I don't particularly like them. I'm going to get, which gives it 50.7 overall. Okay. Next, then, we have Year Blues. Year Blues, Paul. This is something a bit different from the two we've just had, isn't it? So we've got a, a white album cut here. November 1968, that album comes out. This is recorded on the 13th and 14th of, of August of 68 and has quite a lot of post-production editing to cut the cut it together. Yeah. And it's a blues song. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the most blues the Beatles ever are. Yeah, definitely. And it's... It's a fascinating article on on the White Album in and of itself. I think because of of how they record it and mm. and what it sounds like. Absolutely. I mean, from the music point of view, the bass is heavy with a capital H on this one, isn't it? I yeah. really like it's fuzzy, loud, fierce. I really love the bass sound of it. Um, and the rawness of this is great. Um, the repetitive guitar bend riff just keeps on going regardless of doesn't it? it only changes to do the kind of little descending links and things now and again uh, when the field changes to double time um i'm not sure if it's the other guitar and or an organ doing lots of the stabby chords that keep jumping in here and there guitars. you know is it guitars that's doing that yeah, yeah. they just kind of like they, they're more or less consistent but they kind of just strike every now and again don't they really short sharp stabs um but they are, everything's kept light enough that John's voice just fills the, 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 the greatest part of the mix. So he can really open up and go for it. Although he's not got his biggest voice on for this. Um, it, it, his voice isn't, you know, if, if McCartney had done this, he'd have pulled the huge soul voice out to do the blues thing. But Lennon's, he's got a, he's got a, a thinness about it, but it's the character that's pushing it across, isn't it? Um, yeah. I like the weird loose wobbly guitar solos over the double time section. I'm calling it the double time section when it goes into that double time feel. I don't know if it's in half time and it goes back to normal time or it's in or it's, it's in single time and it goes to double time. But, you know, when it picks up the pace. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, I love it when, it you know, that section that makes up the last third of the song before they return to a repeat of the main section. Um, it's rough around the edges, um, but that's, I think, on purpose. But it's yeah. really like blues rock that really delivers. Yeah, well, the British blues boom is like in total full swing in right. the in the UK at this point with bands like the Yardbirds, for instance, yeah. things like that. And it's also about the time it's about the time that this comes out. The Bonzos put out "Can Blue Men Sing the Whites," 
which right. is all about you know white men doing the blues, blues yeah. music. Yeah. You know. Um, so it's in the air, and and Lennon's picked it as sort of his mode to get this idea that he's you know got yeah. across. It's, it's and it's a good good choice. Um, I'm going to give it seventy five point five for music production. I mean, this is one of those songs that was made for the White Album. I mean, obviously it was literally made for the White Album. Mm-hmm. But also, I don't think it would have landed anywhere else quite so well, if you know what no. I mean. The, the the White Album's ability to be looser and faster with production and sounds is what this song needed. So it's rough edges, edges it's shouty background noises, and it's heavy distorted bass. It's the rock album. It's a rock song, yeah. albeit in a blues mould, but it's a rock song on a rock album, you know, with... Yeah. guitars and, and drums and stuff yeah it's it, it, it's another John Led rough and raw classic white album song anything too squeaky clean would have ruined it I think and um, the variety of phased guitars there are doing their thing um, one thing I want to point out from a production point Paul is yeah. I never realised listening until I listened back to it just how obviously bad the cutback is in, into the section at the end oh yeah yeah it's a very obvious edit I, I, I've, but, I've also heard this. It's a bit like you. I must have heard it not rather than on tapes, probably on CD in my car more than anywhere else. And yeah. it just passes me by, and I thought, oh, they just they just change change up there at that point. But listening to it with my listening ears on, it's just it's a terrible edit, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. As I say, they did tons of editing to get it together after after the fact, which yeah. is funny because it's one of those songs that uh, in increasing rareness for the period there's them them all playing together in a room in a tiny tiny room you know yeah. so this is them playing as a band they 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 go there's a store cupboard essentially off the side of studio two yeah in abbey road and they go oh well, we'll do it in there then so mm. they, they literally couldn't move for, for sitting around it's a bit like how they'd perhaps rehearse in the old days sat around in a tiny space or on the stage in the cavern yeah. or something like that and you know, they, they, they went, well, what stick is in? So that's why everything's washing over everything else, why there's loads of mm. loads of uh, stuff in the playback. You can hear solos that they've tried to scrub off the tape, but you can hear them because they're on the drum mics right. and things like that. So, but yeah, then it is sort of pieced together a little bit afterwards with a very, very obvious edit in it as well. Yeah, which is strange because of all the kind of songs that the Beatles have done, you know, this is amongst the few that, at this stage, especially in their career, where you think they could have done it as a take. You think, you know, not all of it, obviously the overdubs, but rather than actual cut and shut. But anyway, despite that, for its deliberate rawness um, and its feel, I'm giving it 60 for production. Because um, it, it, it does suit the song. Not the My favourite so thing on it is the big overdubbed snare that comes in. Yeah, about, it comes at the, at the yeah halfway through, is it? Or yeah, essentially. Uh, yeah. I'm always a big fan when they stick an extra snare on top. So when the wobbly guitar solo comes in, doesn't it? And I, yeah, yeah, I did. I did notice that. I, 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 I had a note on it which I didn't mention, but yeah, it's um, it's always it's it's quite it's not it's not very subtle, but it, it's good to have it. Lyrics then, it certainly cuts to the point. This one, doesn't it? Um, I think he might be lonely and want to die. Although I think he probably doesn't either. Cry for help, etc. I mean, he's been doing it since help. So it's another one. I mean, it's a hard listen as far as the content goes, if you take him at his word. Yeah, but, yeah. But, you know, but it's an insight into a complicated character who had his highs and lows, like everyone. And he's uh, also trying to get with Yoko at the time. You know, they're not 
fully, you know, the item they become. So it's, but any time away from her for John is like, is like physical and mental agony for him. And it yeah. comes out in this sort of thing. Because this is the same, obviously, you know, I'm so tired around the same time, isn't it? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's, he's pining over her. Um, and this is a, a, at least a glimpse, perhaps exaggerated for effect, maybe, um, or maybe not, into one of his lows. Um, I'm going to guess that he liked this one in later years because it's personal and miserable, which I imagine yeah. is two favourite things. And it's one that he played with other bands afterwards. You know, right. he does it live a couple of times. So yeah, so yeah, we, I, I thought he, I thought he might do because um, <laughs> he loved he loved. I don't want to say. I, didn't mean to, I was going to say he loved himself, but I don't mean it like that. He loved. Well, once he once he arrived at the way he wrote songs, yeah. the way he thought he should be writing songs, stripping away yeah. artifice and, and dealing with the individual and expression, that's when they start to become the ones that he really yeah. carries forward a love for. Which is great. Um, so I never, um, just to pick out some things from it, I never really bothered before to look into the mention of Dylan's Mr. Jones, which I've now gone and had a listen to as he's the Go character, the lead character in his song, Mr. Thin Man. Um, so he was inexplicably yeah. finding his life fall apart. So he's just using him as a, as a, a comparison to another character who's finding everything going wrong or yeah. ca- causing him angst. I'd not listened to that before. Now I'll put it up on the playlist yeah. along with this episode. Um, the Ballad of a Thin Man. Yeah, it's a good song. Um, but back to John's own lyrics. Um, Around the repetitions, we have some interesting imagery. Black clouds crossed his mind, blue mists in his soul, being devoured by birds and worms. You know, his mother, you know, his mother is of the earth and all that stuff. It's yeah. it's bleak in part, as, as it was intended. And it is hard to score something so outright depressing, but it's got, got me talking because it's, you know, it is so... It's um, expression. I mean, this is, he yeah. says he hates his rock and roll for, for someone who... Rock and roll saved this this man's life. To feel so despairing that you you know you're even expressing, yeah, you know that you can't understand your own music because you're in this state is is an interesting thing. Yes, it is. And then they go into a really good rock and roll section, well, rocky section. Yeah, yeah it's um, it's what he intended, so it works very well with the music. So I'm giving it 73 for lyrics, which gives it 69.5 overall. Next up, baby, you're a rich man. Baby, you're a rich man, Paul. Well, this is news to me. Um, Baby, you're a rich man is the B-side to All You Need Is Love. Uh, So it comes out on that as a single on 7th of July, 1967. It also turns up on the B-side of the... uh, mystery tour lp eventually it's recorded at olympic studios on the 11th of may 1967 and it's like one really intense session they they go in and they record this song i think it's the only song that was entirely recorded and mixed in somewhere other than abbey road because most of the other ones when they were in other studios they then took back to abbey road to continue working on but this is like done all in one session in Olympic Studios and, of course, notably has the funny sound of the clavier on it. The clavier 
or Clavia Line. Clavia Line, okay. I was, you've answered a question I was going to come up later. <laughs> well, I thought it might. Yeah. It's such a strange song to listen to and try to pick apart musically, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah. There's no template for songs like this. It's another one of those ones. Um, mm. A bit like, yeah, like a few others we've already dealt with. It has this chuntering rhythm on the muted bass and guitar strings later on that keep it kind of shuffling along um, with the bouncy piano. But it's often exceptionally thin in places. Yeah. In the first half, or first two thirds, I'd say. I was going to say the Indian instrument, which by that I mean what you just said. I've already forgotten. What is it? The, cl- the clavier line. Clavier line. Is it an Indian instrument or is it just... No, it's not. I'll, I'll tell you what it is when we get to okay. uh, production. Whatever the, the, the clavier line that plays the little solos every now and again lends this song so much of its character and it's really cool. Um, and it's as is the little bit of doubling guitar where, with the vocal here and there where every now and again the guitar kind of echoes the... The, well, no, I think it just doubles up with the vocal. It's really subtle. It comes in and out. Ad, adds a kind of texture to it. The, the chorus is great. Sing along, catchy, driven. The drumming's excellent. Yeah. Uh, Ringo's fills that come in where fills wouldn't normally be, and but they just seem to come in like, well, that, that's not where the fills meant to be, but then they just settle back into the rhythm and it's all worked. I don't, I don't know how he does it. Um, and then the added percussion, which helps to build that up. The problem for me is that it takes the majority of the song to build up all those layers that it eventually gets to, uh, at which point it starts to fade out. I just wish it got there a bit quicker sometimes, but it, it's still a, a really interesting piece. So I'm going to give it 66 for music. Mm. Production, then. What is a clavier line? Clavier line? Right. Yes, clavier line. Well remembered okay. from seconds ago. It's, <laughs> <laughs> well, the clavier line, there's so, certain different versions of the clavier line but it's another electronic instrument so it's a kind of a forerunner to the the synthesizers that come along in the next couple of years after this like the 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 moog synthesizers and things like that but it was it's been around for a a little while by this point and in this case i think it was like a little three octave thing so it looks like if anyone's ever seen those little mini midi keyboards that you sometimes, you know, have for desktop music production. But it's also, it's sort of sat on what looks like a little case. It's got loads of switches and levers around it. And it was originally designed to sort of slide under, uh, in front of your piano keyboard. So you could play the piano and then you could use this as well whilst playing the piano and simulate orchestral instruments. Not that it's, you know, not that any of the presets or the settings, you could ever really sound like a violin or a cello, but they sound like, the clavier line and i i've always been fascinated by it because of this song and i took my students when i was a music technology lecturer we had a trip to berlin funnily enough and one of the places we went was a musical instrument museum and i finally saw one in the flesh so i know what it looks like it's such a small thing and it needs an amplifier to amplify the sound and it's made of flesh yeah it's made of flesh but it's yeah, it's such a funny little thing, and and Lennon's playing this stuff on it, and according to legend, anyway, he's playing it by rolling an orange up and down the keyboard, so it's doing that sort of stuff. But it is it is deliberately, I think, designed to sound a bit like something you could do on a, on a, an Indian instrument, perhaps. Yeah, and it might even be a little bit of a Mickey take of that because it is a bit of a Mickey take of a song. It's um. Yeah, it's surprising about the orange thing because it's it's definitely if sounds like the the kind of 
trills between the two notes would be hard to achieve with an orange. I would have thought it would be easier to do it with your hands. Um, for the rest of the production then, some f- the claps are a bit feeble. I mean, I say a bit feeble, they're quite feeble towards the beginning. There's some, they're not the best of claps. Um, but they settle down eventually because they just form one of the many percussive layers, but they, they, they feel a bit... It all feels a bit thin and weak at the beginning, but I think it's... I think it's partly a, an issue of it being all recorded and finished off in one session in yeah. Olympic Studios rather than at Abbey Road with that set of equipment and that set of staff and that set of working, maybe. Yeah, that could explain it. I mean, um, I say eventually, though, the tapestry of the percussion and guitars and those muted string sounds and all those things start to really get going and sounding great. I just wish they got to it early on. It's got some ambition, but it's thin in places. Um, I'm going to give it 57 for production. Lyrics, then. I mean, I've no clue what it's all about. Can you enrich me at all? Not really, because there's no definitive answer about what it's all about anyway. I mean, I know it was a, it was one of the songs they wrote with the intention of it going into the Yellow Submarine film, because they had to provide some songs for that. Yeah. Um, but obviously it doesn't have any, you know because they didn't know what the film was going to be about. It was just going to be a song that they needed to yeah. do to fill the quota, but it doesn't end up in Yellow Submarine, not as a full-length thing anyway. No, it's in briefly, isn't it? They just have yeah, a little, yeah, snippet little snippet of it. Snippets, yeah. yeah. There's a, um, but, but basically, it's a John verse and a Paul chorus smashed together right. of leftover bits. And there's some talk about it being a reference to Brian Epstein, you know, about, baby, you're a rich man. And there's this talk about John changing the lyrics to be quite offensive about... Brian while they're recording it in language I don't want to say out loud but it's you know it's easy to find information about that anyway I don't know I think it's just one of these things they've got a couple of bits and pieces stuck them together had a bit of you know their love of nonsense as much as anything Mm. keep all your money in a big brown bag inside a zoo type stuff and then then it's just playing around in the studio and, and seeing what they can do in the time that they've got you know add a couple of overdubs stick a little bit of backward piano in there somewhere, you know, just, it's a, it's pre-written, but also not pre-written, is how I feel with these things. Okay. It ends up written as a studio piece. Yeah. My voice is going terrible, I must apologise everyone. That's all right, say that again if you want me to cut it in. No. Okay. (laughs) Just put up with it. (laughs) Okay, um, yeah, I like, I too like the weirdness of the um, big brown bag inside a zoo line. Um, it's a nonsense lyric, which makes it sound a bit like a nursery rhyme, a bit like a Michael Finnegan-style character. It's got that feel to it. Um, and I like the line, um, tuned to a natural E, happy to be that way. Um, I like the idea of being tuned to a natural E. Yeah, um, yeah it's a good foil for a song, even though if it doesn't make any particular sense, it's, it's evocative. I like it. I'm giving it 64.5 for lyrics, which gives it 62.5 overall. I'll give you a little bit of uh, bonus trivia for it, though. Go on, then. Uh, Mick Jagger was at this recording session, Ooh. and his name is listed on the tape box, so it's possible he was singing along with the sing-along bit of this. Yeah. Um, but you can't really detect it in there, and I have listened to the isolated vocals, and it doesn't really, nothing stands out as non beatle no. And apparently one of the engineers played some vibraphones on it, Eddie Kramer, but I, you can't hear any vibes on it okay. either. So there's that. So there's stuff. two things that happened, but as didn't far as happen. we have any evidence of, they didn't happen. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. And the other thing I meant to mention before, actually, is yeah. the clavier line. If people aren't sure what it is, well, you'll have heard it if they've heard Telstar by the Tornadoes, which okay. was a huge instrumental hit produced by Joe Meek from 1962. 
that's okay. the lead on that is a clavier line as well. So oh, very good. Well, let's move on to our last song. This is just a little thing. Lady Madonna. Lady Madonna, Paul. Boogie woogie. <laughs> um, yeah. Lady Madonna, boogie woogie song. It's yeah. Yeah. recorded on the 3rd and the 6th of February, 1968. Uh, released as the as a single on Mar- 15th of March, 1968. Spends eight weeks in the UK charts. It spends a couple of those weeks at number one. Only gets to number four in America, though, which is interesting. And, you know, it's a McCartney... I'm going to write a boogie woogie song now. So he does. And um, yeah. One could arguably say nails it. Yeah, I think so. It's got a very, very obvious influence, a particular piece of music that, that was in, that inspired it. Okay. What's but that? Then, well, it's, it's a piece called bad penny blues by Humphrey Littleton's band. Yeah. Which was recorded and released on Parlophone, which George Martin was overseeing at the time. It, it, George Martin didn't produce Bad Penny Blues, but he was, you know, it was out on Parlophone, which was under his purview. Right. And that's an excellent piece of, of boogie-woogie jazz stuff. Humphrey Littleton's brilliant on it. and But the piano part on that is just Lady Madonna-esque. Okay. Let's say, Esque. Or Lady Madonna is Bad Penny Blues-esque. Okay. And of course, they basically, they all knew this piece of music and it was like, well, can we make a record that sounds like that? Which is why you end up with the, the brush drums and the particular microphones they chose for the piano and stuff like that. Which is fair enough. That's how it works, you know, often, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it's just brilliant. Right from the off, the piano, bass and drums just set the toe tapping with the bass notes um, in the piano and the actual bass, giving it almost a dual bass line. Yeah. Um, because that guitar, um, that guitar, that's exactly the wrong word. Because that piano is a... Such a feature of the song, and then the guitar and the brass coming it come in and double up that riff that we you know we all know and love, um, and it's loads of fun to play, as you know, yeah, if, you know if you've not played it already, um, it's 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 a great song to, to to play, and it's in in fact I'm banned from playing this on the piano at home by my wife <laughs> or any piano because if I go any towards any piano she goes Don't, you're not going to play Lady Madonna are you? It's one of the f- few things I can half play properly on the piano anyway it's such a whole of a song everything is playing its part almost in unison to deliver a perfect bit of boogie woogie rock pop um paul's delivering the vocal story clearly powerfully and the harmonies that join in for the see how they run and the bad bad bars are just golden beatles magic it's a corker i'm giving 89 for music Mm. it's one of those ones as well that i think you take for granted because when I came to listen to it, it's like, oh, Lady Madonna. And when, because I've got my listening ears on, um, it's, it's just like, I, this is, this is brilliant. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it is. I, it's, it's, it's a, an excellent song. And it, it's quite strange as well when you compare it to a, other Beatles singles. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's such a great piece of work and it's no wonder that it's one of the ones that McCartney just keeps playing year after yeah. year, after year, after year, after year, after year. Yeah, so. yeah, he knew what he had with this. Um, Production-wise, and I think it's perfectly made as well. I think this is the other thing about it: the shuffle of the music is so well captured in the percussion and drums. You know, like say using the the brushes and things. 
Um, this time the hand claps work very well within the mix. Um, and by the time the guitar has doubled up the riff, the, the brass is, you know, along with the brass, um, it's sounding great. I'm also hearing people on a comb kazoo or something like that going well, on. Well, they're doing sort of, yeah, they're, they're doing um, fake brass type uh, backing vocals. Yeah. Which is what I think they were originally doing before they brought in the actual brass players. Right, I so, think they left it on. Yeah, so they've got a mix of things there. So you've got two baritone sax, which are the very low saxophones, the very mm. low saxophones, yeah. doing the really pushing the bass line bit. And yeah. you've got a couple of tenor saxes, which again are a little higher than baritones, but still quite meaty sounding things. One of which is played by Ronnie Scott, who does the solo in this on his saxophone. Um, but yeah, it's just in terms of production, like you say, they just get it right. And I think it's because they go in and say, oh, it should sound like Bad Penny Blues. Right. The, the, engineers, the, the yeah. engineers know what to do. Yeah. Get on that piano, get that mic in the right place, get your brush drums there. But then what we're going to do is add the Beatles touch, which is add a full drum kit on the other side of the spectrum, yeah. you know, the stereo se- separation, and this really heavy, you know, riff Guitar, based yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. It makes a perfect whole with good added instrumentation, Maybe not a lot of it or any funny studio tricks, but it's just solidly good. 88, I'm giving it for production. Nice. Lyrics, then. So we've come a long way by this point from where the paperback writer Paul is trying to not write songs about love and instead is often, at least, finding characters and stories to tell us. And this era of his and style of his lyrics are brilliant. I mean, again, I'm not entirely sure... You know, it's like taking the, the the Madonna and putting her into a kind of a soap, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure yeah. if there's a specific yeah. person Lady Madonna is meant to represent beside the obvious, but it's a bit like a Renaissance oil painting come to life, mixed with a kitchen sink drama. You know, you can imagine her living just down the road from Eleanor Rigby and living next door to the man from the motor trade. It's just part of the McCartney Beatle world that yeah, exists. The, the McCartney-verse. Yeah, yeah. Into the McCartney-verse. <laughs> that exists somewhere in his and now our minds. Yeah. I mean, is it is it is is there is he referencing someone or is it is that well, it's, it's not no 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 one's no one's specific but the influence on this that's always been sort of quoted is uh, the cover of or I think it was on the cover but it's a, a photograph of a, a, a Polynesian woman on a, on National Geographic magazine that he saw once. Okay. And sort of it was it was her with a woman with a baby. Yeah. Which is obviously a very powerful image and it sort of stuck with him. But also he sort of had the concept of the Virgin Mary, which he then twisted into this sort of symbolic idea of, of woman, you know, yeah. womanhood in general, and particularly sort of working class women as he as he said there. He calls it a tribute to women. Yeah, it, I know, mean it, so. Yeah, it's definitely it, I think it's on that side of things, isn't it? It's definitely uh, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair comment. I think yeah, it's... but I, I also I will say though I mean it's it comes out as a single, sort of out of necessity though because this they, they record this just before they head off to Rishikesh and they've only got two or three things recorded and they know they need to put something out, mm. and this is clearly the best of the of the, the handful of little things they've got at the time, because mm. um, the Inner Light was never going to be the A side of any single despite it mm. being a very beautiful song, um, so. Yeah, if they'd recorded this in the mass of the White Album sessions, it might have got lost somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think it, it, it must have benefit, benefited from its prominence as a single. But it's 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 great. I'm giving it 86 for lyrics, which gives it a, a, quite a mighty 87.7 overall. 
So, shall we do the rankings of the four that didn't make it into the top 10? We have Matchbox at 64. You Like Me Too Much has gone in at joint 48 with Do You Want to Know a Secret? At 32, we've got Baby You're a Rich Man. And at 26, You're Blues. Which means we have a new top 10, um, which Fixing a Hole has dropped to number 11. So, let's hear the top 10. At number 10, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. At number 9, You Never Give Me Your Money. At number 8, Long, Long, Long. At number 7, Lovely Rita. At number 6, Nowhere Man. At number 5, Yesterday. At number 4, The Fool on the Hill. At number 3, Cry Baby Cry. At number 2, Lady Madonna. And at number 1, I Am the Warrus. So, we've had some shakes at the top, Paul. Yeah, it's gone in at a high position. Yeah, and just as I've said before, it's, um, it's this is going to happen several times at least, if not dozens, before the end of this, because I hadn't even thought of Lady Madonna, you know, when I was thinking, yeah. oh, I wonder where things will be. I hadn't crossed my mind, because it's, so, it's just so normalised as part of the canon that you don't perhaps think about it. It's, it's, um, and when you listen to it, it's undeniably worthy of the time it's spent at number one it's a great song so thanks again paul for your help and support this week that's all right where would you like people to go listening for your things well if this is coming out on the 30th of november i'd like people to go and uh, make sure they catch up with the head ballet podcast which is on all the things mm-hmm. at head ballet pod on twitter because we'll have just we me and my guests will have just finished season one of the head ballet which has been a joy to do good and it's been a very good season yeah and you'll be in for a treat if you've not heard any and you've got the entire season so that'll be um definitely worth going to do as for us here at um the big beetle sort out please come and find us on twitter at big underscore sort and tell everyone you know about it um And, yeah, I'll leave it at that this week. So, thanks again, everybody. Goodbye. Good Beatle.